Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Amy Shaw is a double board certified medical doctor and nutrition expert with training from Cornell, Columbia, and Harvard universities. She's got an amazing new book out called I'm So Effing Tired, a proven plan to beat burnout, boost your energy, and reclaim your life. Sounds very good to me. To boot, she's also part of our life-changing functional nutrition coaching program, which we're going to talk about at the end of the show. She's also a lovely human being, and it's an honor to have her here today. Amy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Oh, thanks for having me again. I guess this is my second Yes, this is your second appearance. Always a pleasure. Congratulations on I'm so effing tired. I loved loved your book. And what you touch on as you start the book with this, there's a pretty big problem. So many of us are fatigued and especially women. You point out in the book that, quote, 15% of women reported that they often felt very tired or exhausted compared to just 10% of men. And women between the ages of 18 to 44 were almost twice as likely as men, twice as likely as men, to often feel very tired or exhausted. So let's start there. We're dealing with a quote-unquote energy crisis. Like what's driving this energy crisis and why are women more susceptible to it? Jason. This is the big question, right? We know that women feel more stress than men. The pandemic has brought this out even more. We know that stress in general has risen by 33% stress and burnout, and women feel it disproportionately more than men. Women now have 69% of women report stress-related burnout-related symptoms, whereas 50% of men report stress and burnout-related condition. Now, 50% is a lot, but 69% is an epidemic. Now, we know that one of the months during the pandemic, 100% of the jobs lost were women leaving the workplace because various reasons. And now we know that women have both a disproportionate amount of responsibilities, especially during this last year, but even before that. And we know that there's also a biological basis. There's a few theories out there. One of the theories is that we are built to shut down from excess stress. Our pulsatile hormone in our brain that starts our entire hormone cascade, it's called GnRH pulse is very sensitive to stress, both emotional, physical, any kind of stress. For example, athletes deal with this all the time. They, When they train excessively, they will skip their periods. They won't be able to get pregnant. They'll have hormonal um, imbalances. That GnRH will stop pulsing when it senses stress. And similarly, women will then report low energy. They will report other symptoms of hormonal disturbance. So that is where kind of there's a biological difference, but there's also that environmental and societal difference. And so I think it's a combination of the two. So I love how in the book, you you break down the three core areas, hormones, inflammation, and gut. And so let's start with hormones and talk a little bit about adrenal fatigue. And just... uh, 
for our audience, I think it'd be helpful to just do a recap or primer on adrenal fatigue. And, and, and I think the big question with adrenal fatigue is, which you talk about, why isn't it recognized in the medical literature and by a lot of people in the medical community? Adrenal fatigue is a misnomer. And that's why. I think because you, when I tell you this GNRH pulse starts the entire hormone highway, one of the stops is the adrenals, right? It goes from the GNRH, it goes from gonadotropin releasing hormone from the hypothalamus, then it goes to the pituitary, then it goes to the thyroid, then it goes to the ovaries or the testes, and the adrenals um, are on that pathway. But to say that fatigue is a singular problem with the adrenal uh, gland is wrong. And so I think that's where conventional medicine and functional medicine kind of clash because in traditional medicine, we don't consider adrenal fatigue a, an actual diagnosis. And the Endocrine Society has noted that this is not an actual diagnosis. And the reason why is because you cannot supplement yourself out of adrenal fatigue. And what was happening is a lot of people were saying, well, it's my adrenals need support and I'm going to take these supplements to support my adrenals. And now I don't have to worry about eating. I don't have to worry about my exercise, my lifestyle because I've supported my adrenals. So the paradigm, what I'm trying to teach in this book is that it's the highway. And if there is, you live in New York, if there's a traffic jam on one of the exits, like you're screwed everywhere. There's no way that you're going to, your thyroid's not going to work well if you have adrenal stress. Um, your adrenals are responding to what's happening in your brain, what's happening with your thyroid, what's happening with your ovaries or testes if you're a man. And they're all, and they're all sending the signal back to the brain and to back to the organs to say, hey, this is, there's a traffic jam here. You got to, you got to produce more thyroid, you got to produce more adrenal hormones. Like we need to get this moving. And it's a, like a, a systematic issue. So when you're trying to improve your stress, if that's what you are calling adrenal fatigue, what you have to do is you have to improve all of these areas. You have to work on your brain health. You have to work on your gut health. You have to work on your immune health, and then you'll get hormone health. And so that's what I'm, I was trying to to say in the book that adrenal fatigue, it's not that it doesn't exist per se, the symptoms exist, but the framework of how to think about it is that it's a hormonal highway and anywhere that you have congestion, you will feel adrenal symptoms and you'll feel thyroid symptoms and you'll feel PMS symptoms. And it kind of always goes together. If you talk to someone who has hormonal imbalance or adrenal fatigue, they have more than just adrenal issues. It's a full hormone system problem. So as I think about misdiagnosed or undiagnosed issues, also you talk about this, the thyroid issues. What are we missing there? Why do so many thyroid issues go undiagnosed? Well, I think the biggest thing to understand that I've learned in the past 20 years really of now seems like 20 years feels like a long time, but you know, 20 years of training and medical school and is that we don't have good answers for hormonal issues. If you, when I was studying, when I was at Columbia, which you were at Columbia. Not in medical school, not in medical school. Yes, I was in the, well, I was at the Columbia Presbyterian labs and yeah. doing my immunology fellowship. And 
that's a little bit north of where you went to college, right? I was studying hormones and its effect on the immune system. And I was so shocked that there's so little information. We don't even know that basic information. So long story short, the reason why thyroid problems are missed is that we don't have good testing. We don't have accurate testing for subclinical thyroid issues or um, thyroid issues that aren't frankly noticeable on lab work. And so, yes, you can um, do all these experimental labs or these other labs and they can help us get a better picture. But in general, I find that women with and men with hormonal issues, you can't necessarily rely on testing alone because it is just inadequate at this in 2021. So this has happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to a lot of our listeners, where you go to a doctor and you're feeling terrible and you go to a doctor and the doctor says to you, there's nothing wrong with you and gives you this look like you're crazy. And I experienced that years ago when I had parasites and then I saw Frank Lipman and he was like, I need a parasite. Yeah. And we went on a protocol and a yeah. fix. But like, I remember going through that and it's terrible. And for listeners who've experienced that, people, it's, it's terrible. You almost want to know, no matter how bad the diagnosis is, you just want to know it because I think the unknowing yeah. people look at you like you're crazy. It's very tough to to swallow. And so, if I, if I go if I go back to that larger point, I, I think people want to educate themselves so that they be they can become. I'll steal another term from Lippman, the the, own, the their own conductor of their healthcare orchestra. So in that sense, with regards to thyroid issues, what are the things that someone listening should be looking for in terms of how they feel, what questions they should ask their doctor? Are there specific labs which aren't the gold standard, but like, hey, maybe if you're, I'm going to make this up, your, your zinc is low. That could be like, there are things to look for so that we can help educate people who, who maybe have an issue and don't realize it. Absolutely. Thyroid issues are something that is very common. Women especially disproportionately have problems with their thyroid. It is There are screening tests that you can do. So the symptoms that you would feel, the number one symptom is fatigue. And so I say in the book that when you feel fatigue, you probably will get a panel of thyroid tests, a panel of tests of your iron levels, of your vitamin D levels. And you definitely want to check all of that. Now, Fatigue is the number one symptoms, but there are other symptoms of low thyroid and high thyroid that people can, in the book, I kind of talk about all the symptoms that you should look for. For low thyroid function, you will notice dry skin. You'll notice that you your pulse may be slower. It's almost like a slowdown of your entire metabolic process. So you might notice gaining of weight. You will notice hair fall. You will notice dry skin. And the biggest fatigue and weight gain is something that probably is the two biggest complaints that people feel. So you should go to your doctor and get the appropriate test. And they may just test a simple TSH. And often that's not enough to find real thyroid problems. So make sure that you're getting a full panel, which includes free T4, reverse T3. You may be looking for autoantibodies because in a lot of women, you'll find anti-TPO or anti-thyroglobin. These are all antibodies. There's a, a bunch of tests that I've listed in there that may be something that you should converse with your doctor about. I'm not telling everyone to do all of these tests because it really does depend on the person. And on, some thyroid doctors have said to me, well, even if you get positive anti-antibodies, autoantibodies, 
there's not much you can do for them if their thyroid function is still within the normal limit. So a lot of this stuff is a discussion with your physician, but there are tests out there beyond just the simple thyroid screening test of TSH. And then if you are feeling tired and your thyroid function is within normal limits, that doesn't mean you're crazy. And it doesn't mean, oh, you're getting old and you just have to deal with this and you're out of luck. This means that you're not going to take your health into your own hands and fix the what I call subclinical problems. Subclinical meaning doesn't show up on your uh, labs or on your visit. So that is something that I urge people because I was told the same thing, Jason. Like I was thinking, how can I be so tired and feel burned out? And I had all these myriad of other symptoms, especially sleep loss. I couldn't sleep at night. I would have anxiety and bad dreams. And I would have, I had all these like, like all these symptoms. And I honestly, the doctor looked at me, my own super smart doctor looked at me and said, you are fine. You're just overworked. You have ch small children. You're, you know, have a busy practice. And this is something many people complain about. And I left there with zero tools, zero insight about what do I do next? It was just like, oh, well, you're don't have a huge defect in your labs, then you're you know, after that, the, and you've heard this before, after that, there's no tools that are given. And I think there's a lot of, I don't know if you know about this, but there's been a little bit of a rift between Western, or there continues to be a rift between Western medicine and functional medicine, because there are a, a lot of mainstream physicians who say, yes, we don't have great answers in Western medicine, but no, you should not be taking 1,000 supplements um, to fix the various problems that you have. So there's, there is a middle ground there, and that's what I'm asking people to do. I'm saying, yes, you're, that's not an adequate answer, but no, you can't just go to a doctor who runs thousands of dollars of testing on you and gives you thousands of dollars of supplements you have to take for your whole life that may be supporting the system. I'm, I'm talking about a toolkit that you can do yourself for free, that is going to bridge the gap between the two. Yeah, there's a very, I think, there's an art and science to it. Personally, yes. what I found, look, testing is extraordinarily valuable. I'm a big believer in supplements, but you don't want to live your life where you're over testing and over and, and just supplementing way too much. And I think it's a balance of, of like getting a baseline, getting an understanding of this is my body. This is what works. This is what doesn't work. And then you kind of iterate. But, you know, it, 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 it can be look, knowledge and information is power, but then you don't want to overdo it. And so and everyone is different here. Um, yeah. And you want to spot treat like I love that you said, like, get the baseline test take the quizzes in the book, get your baseline test and spot treat. You don't need to take an insurance policy with your supplements, right? You need to, there's negative side effects from some of these things. So, or all of these things. Yeah. So you really want to take what you need to fix the problems that you need help bridging from lifestyle and diet and adding in the supplements after that. So something else I thought was fascinating, I think everyone listening is familiar with inflammation. You don't want it, not good, leads to lots of bad things, suffice to say. You talk about silent inflammation. So can you elaborate about silent inflammation? The life, I'll give you the best example. The life that we lead, the status quo that we have in our 
world right now, the food, the lifestyle is creating silent inflammation in your body. So silent inflammation is like, I'll give you an example. If you eat a Pop-Tart right now, Jason, you decided for screw Don't my do it. Don't do it. Don't do yeah. it, guys. Don't do it. So you, so you take an organic sugar-free <laughs> Pop-Tart. Okay. That, that's a lot better. And, that's a lot better. And, but it's still, it's still processed and it's still, so you eat that. Your gut bacteria are telling your immune system within minutes when it travels down, hey, there's something I don't recognize here. Can you come and help me? And it recruits your immune cells to go there. And the that type of inflammation is happening at a low level all the time. But when we're eating processed foods very often, there's a lot of recruitment of our immune system to that area and all the time. And so what we're having is our gut bacteria is talking to our immune system and they're saying, hey, actually there's this other thing that I don't, I can't decide what to do with it. I want us to check it out. It's they're getting the army and the army is coming there and checking out this food and creating an inflammatory response because of the foods we're eating and the things that we're ingesting. And this is inflammation. Inflammation is your immune system being activated. They're calling their friends and saying, hey, we don't recognize this. We need help here. We are um, struggling here. So then your body basically signals to the rest of its body, hey, go and help these people out. This is, you may not know what's going on. This is what's happening in our bodies right now for, I would say, pretty much the majority of the American population. But then it's a problem too. If at four o'clock, the organic Pop-Tart shows up every day and your your immune buddies are also a little too familiar with this four o'clock date they have. Yeah. And then chronic inflammation. I mean, this chronic inflammation, it's such a hard concept to understand. But when you understand that your immune system is constantly talking to your gut bacteria and they're making decisions all the time about what to do, then you understand, oh, that's why... I felt so inflamed, swollen, and tired when I was eating really poorly over that one or two week span. And that's why I felt so much better, less inflamed, less puffy. I just was recovering from illnesses so much better when I was eating better, taking care of my body, sleeping, getting sunlight, nature, et cetera. So that is a big problem in our society. Inflammation is a, is a topic that is such a tricky topic because inflammation is a good thing. We want, I mean, when you get COVID, you want your inflammatory response to find it and kill it without going crazy. We don't want an overactive immune system. Like people are always like, I want a, a strong active immune system, but you don't want it to be overactive because as we saw with SARS-CoV-2, Overactive immune system is part of the problem and you get a cytokine storm and you get all these bad things. So people who have overactive immune system had a really hard time and people who had a low immune system and underactive also had a very hard time or are having a very hard time. It's not like it's over. And then, so you want a balanced immune system. So it's a very, it's like, you don't always want to cut down inflammation, but you don't want to have this chronic or silent inflammation. So can we segue to the connection between inflammation and, and leaky gut and maybe give us a primer on leaky gut? What is it? How do we know if we have it? 
how can we fix it? I feel like leaky gut's everywhere. It's it, it, let's just go there. Yeah. Give us a primer yeah. on leaky gut. Yeah, we now know that our gut bacteria are like a lush Amazon jungle that protects our body. Okay, we only have one layer of our gut cells. The rest is bacteria. And when it's lush and thick, we are able to really block things out from getting into our bodies. But when that bacteria is really thinned out and there's damage uh, because we're eating all these foods that are damaging our gut lining, that one layer of uh, cells can be torn or get weakened and the junctions between those cells can become loose and that those gaps can let food particles inflammatory cells into our own bloodstream and so if you think about gluten allergy that's a great like celiac disease is a great example of this when you have celiac disease in people who are susceptible they are letting little pieces of gluten into their gut lining through those gaps and your body is creating an inflammatory response. And that's why you get a lot of the symptoms that you get. So when you have a healthy, thick, lush, Amazon jungle gut bacteria that is blocking these one layer of sensitive cells, you're good. But when we start to deplete that, say we've had antibiotics, We've been eating very poor foods for years. We drink alcohol to the excess. We're not sleeping. That Amazon jungle gut bacteria becomes thinned or non-existent. And those, that layer of cell gets exposed and gets damaged. And then that creates these holes or leaks in that gut lining. And so that's what it, that's what it is. And so to this day, there's no real test for leaky gut. Yeah, no, there isn't. I mean, you can if you have a gluten celiac or sure. a specific diagnosis, but you cannot test. And that's why there's um, also different ways of describing this um, process. What I'm describing you is a scientific biological process going on, but we still don't know how to capture that. Like, how do we tell people like, okay, you have, Jason, your gut is this percent leaky or like you're dealing... Right now, it's really just end-stage symptoms. If you're feeling GI symptoms of bloating, of diarrhea, of constipation, or those are, especially with certain foods, that's a sign. So GI, overall GI distress in, in some shape or form is a sign of, of leaky gut. So how do we, let's say if we are experiencing GI distress and we think we have leaky gut, how do we go about resolving it. This is where my energy trifecta comes in. So I try, I, I'm teaching people in the book that by improving your immune health, by improving your hormone health, you will improve your gut health. And by improving your gut health, you will improve your hormone health and your immune health. And the brain is in the middle listening to all of this. Okay. So if you are trying to improve your hormones. You want to improve your gut health. If you want to improve your immune health, you improve your gut health. If you improve your immune health and your hormone health, your gut health will also improve. Number one step is to take away the gut microbiome killers. So antibiotics um, are like the number one blame for so much of our woes because we take it for unnecessary reasons. I'm not telling you not to take it if you have sepsis or like an infected, a very severe infection, but we really are overusing them as you've heard that before. The other uh, thing I think that was shocking to me was the data behind 
prebiotic vegetables and the improvement in gut health. So vegetables, fiber, resistant starches, and prebiotics, these things feed the bacteria in our lower colon. And when you feed this lush Amazon, these plants, as we speak, as I'm saying this analogy, they flourish and they make more and they communicate with our immune system and everything works beautifully. And when they're not communicating, they're not getting the food they need and they're getting killed by antibiotics, that's when you have the issue with the leaky gut. So I say to people, increase your vegetable intake to six to eight servings a day. Now that is a lot because I have always been vegetarian from when I was a kid, but I eat zero to two servings of vegetables every single day. And so to get to six to eight is a big ask, but I think it can really transform your gut health. So everyone's going to get their grocery list ready. What are those must have foods we should all go shopping for right now? Onions. Onions. Garlic. Um, asparagus, jicama, cruciferous vegetables such as broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and cabbage. And then you have your leafy greens like spinach, all of those things. And then you have amazing root vegetables like sweet potato and yams. And these are all of like the vegetables for me in my mind are a there's so many different classes and they do all different things. But if you can get six to eight servings of those in your daily life, that means like two servings at every meal, at least you are going to experience enormous benefits in your gut health. I love that you led with onions. I think that may be yes. a first on this podcast and oh, almost wow. that you led with onions. I love it. I love it. And so in terms of you talked about foods, what about lifestyle, stress, sleep, exercise? What role does lifestyle play? Huge role, Jason. I think lifestyle plays, uh, I told, I tell people in the book that if you make very few small lifestyle changes, this is a problem bigger. Our fatigue and burnout problem is a lifestyle problem. Yes, it's a diet problem, but it's, it's, also a lifestyle problem. We don't get enough movement in the day. And I'm talking about neat movement, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So we know that the longest living people in the world, they get a lot of movement in the day. They're not going to a gym and exercising. And they're often just walking all day. They're often just taking, taking time to do yoga or do whatever. So need to exercise and circadian rhythms is a area that I think we're really missing out on. We are not syncing our bodies with circadian rhythms, which is a 24 hour cycle that rules our biological functions. So I I love neat. I have not heard that before. So I love, I've heard a lot about moving all the time, high intensity interval training and so forth, but I've not heard neat. So I love that. So can can you, so again, can you, what is neat again? It's yeah, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So Thermogen, I love it. <laughs> so we know that the longest living people in the world in the blue zones, they are doing a lot of neat exercise and they're not doing what we in the Western world consider exercise. They don't do the exercise that we do, but they're not sitting in a chair for eight hours a day. They are moving around. They're taking the stairs. They're walking to their friend's place. They are moving. And I just tell people it's a very simple switch. You may like, I talk about 120 minutes of nature time a week, but that can mean 
taking Jason's call outside. That, Listen to this helps, podcast you know? outside and walk for everyone listening. Yeah, like we can, yeah, like I'm sure that a lot of people have the ability to take their phone right now and step outside for a few minutes and get some nature time and sunlight directly to your retina that goes to your brain and that resets your entire system and has benefits that are far ranging. It's not just better sleep, which will happen. It's better energy. It's better concentration and it's more, it's feelings of happiness and well-being. I, I love it. I am a, I'm a big fan of neat. And so you mentioned- I think you are. I think I know you walk a lot because I, you're I, lucky you live in a place that you can. What about all, there's so many people who are like, really struggling when I tell people about meat, they really struggle with that concept because they live in a place that either is like a frozen tundra, which a lot of the world is, or they live in a, they practice in a way where walking is just not a part of their life. And so you have to kind of talk to them about other ways of getting meat. Yeah. For me, it just, I am, we are very fortunate that we live in Brooklyn and it's very walkable, but I am wired. If you wanted to torture me, you like would sit me, I can't sit still. I, I always yeah. have to be walking and moving. I take the stair. It's just me. Like I, I, I love it. I cannot just sit or, and I'm also like six, seven. So as people know, like I can't just like sit in a chair all day or sit in a car. Yeah. Like it's a way to like yeah. kill my lower back. No. Uh, I, I just to add to that, Jason. So part of this book is not just talking about your own personal health, but how can we change systems? Like we are on the road to burnout. We are on the road to fatigue. The status quo is disordered, right? So how what you're saying about walking around your your you want to walk around, that's most people, if you ask them, really would prefer in their workday to have to take a call outside, would like to, we need to like change our workplace culture and actually say, hey, you know what? I realize how important natural light is to people, how important neat movement is to people, how important mindfulness and maybe we do mini ads or change our structure of our day or reduce the blue light exposure at night or whatever it is. There's systematic things we can do to improve our culture as a whole. Well, I think one of the silver linings of COVID is the workplace has fundamentally changed and going into an office every day or cubicle culture or whatever you subscribe to, I think has been replaced by work from anywhere, come into the office when you want. That, that's what we've adopted. So I think people do have the flexibility now to do all these things and figure out what works for them. For some people, it's phenomenal. For some, it's maybe a little overwhelming, but you do have that flexibility to like take a call while walking and do all those things if you can so that the optimist in me says that's ultimately good for workplace wellness so you did mention circadian rhythm and i know you're a huge fan of of fasting i'm a huge fan of fasting and i thought this was interesting to read in the book you say intermittent fasting is good but circadian fasting is better please tell us more yeah, thanks, Jason. I the Nobel Prize in Medicine went to the scientists who worked on circadian rhythms in 2017. This is an area of science we're just understanding. We know that our bodies work on light and dark circadian rhythms. Um, every one of our cells have has a clock, and eating with that clock has a lot of benefits outside of just weight loss, which is a huge benefit. 
The hormone melatonin, for example, binds to our brain to tell it to get sleepy and to start to move to more reparative processes. It also binds to the pancreas and it tells the pancreas that, hey, shut off insulin production and pancreatic enzyme production. It's, it's time to move to repair and renewal mode. And when you eat late into the night, it's like someone woke you up out of deep sleep and asked you a really difficult math problem. You are going to make mistakes and you're not going to perform well on that math test. And that is exactly what happens when you eat late into the night. And so what I'm telling people is like, okay, I love the benefits of intermittent fasting. We have the benefits of autophagy and metabolic switching. And there's just benefit after benefit for intermittent fasting. But if you really want to do intermittent fasting the right way, the way our bodies are designed to eat, you will want to end your dinner earlier, maybe two to three hours before bed at least, right? And fast overnight when it's dark. And then eat in the day when like have a breakfast at maybe it's a little bit later, maybe it's after your fasted workout. So doing intermittent fasting in a circadian style is the correct biological way of doing intermittent fasting. So in some way, it's a departure from the hard 16-8 or 18-6 or yes. 24 or whatever you subscribe to. It essentially, okay, a couple hours before dark and then in the morning, maybe a little later before I like get moving, that's what yeah. I'm going to eat. So in reality, it's probably arranged between 13 and 17 yeah. hours, but it's not like a hard... Yes, absolutely. And that's what I'm saying is, hey, look at physiology or and look at how we were evolutionarily built. We didn't have refrigerators um, and microwaves, right? We would end our meals when shortly after sundown, probably. And we wouldn't eat first thing in the morning. I mean, there was no like cereal right there when you woke up, right? You would wake up you would get your food and it may be a little bit delayed. So physiologically and evolutionarily speaking, circadian fasting fits our body's bio biology just much to that side. So, so something I, I talk about frequently on this podcast and I've discussed with you previously and I, and I want to touch it again because I think it's so, so important. Can you talk about how men or women are fundamentally, well, we know men and women are fundamentally different, but <laughs> yeah. especially in terms of fasting and why yeah. women need to approach fasting differently than men. I think it's critically important. Yeah, I love that. We are not, you know, small men, as people say, because in the literature, they do no research on women. They just prescribe a smaller dose. And that just does it just doesn't work like that. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I know. It's, it's really ridiculous. And so with intermittent fasting, I think you and I both know, and if you know anyone, if anyone listening to this has probably experienced a time where they either fasted too long, didn't eat enough on in their eating window, and they are dealing with the, the symptoms the next day. And so for me, I did the 16-8 fasting and day three, my energy levels tanked. I couldn't sleep because I was hungry. And then I was overeating during my eating window and it just failed miserably for me. And I find a lot of women feel the same way. And it goes back to that GNRH pulse. Our body is feeling that stress. And if it's like you 
Jason decided, I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow, but I'm not going to start with one mile. I'm just going to go the whole way. And then I'm going to do that every day for three days and then see how you feel on day three. And that's how we feel when we are intermittent fasting a full, say, 16-8 protocol every day. So what I ask women to do is go very slow and start with 12 hours of circadian fasting and get your body kind of acclimated to that. And once it's doing it, once it's acclimated to that, you can move to the next level and next level. And we think that women in their reproductive years are quite sensitive to stressors. And so you just have to grade that stressor. So a hormetic stressor like exercise or intermittent fasting is so beneficial, but you need to grade it. And you don't want to be running that marathon on day one because your body will feel the effects, and you will damage your hormones. So there are people out there uh, that I know have, because people have been messaging me nonstop, hey, this person says women should not intermittent fast. This person says it's dangerous for women to intermittent. And I'm like, it's like saying it's dangerous for Jason to exercise. Like, yeah, like if he does a triathlon in like rich roll and in the desert, probably dangerous because he's not used to it and he hasn't trained for it. But to say that exercise is not beneficial or harmful is like ridiculous, right? That's the same thing with intermittent fasting to say intermittent fasting, women should not intermittent fast. It's a disservice because now women are confused and they're like, wait, I was doing this thing. I felt great. And now I'm hearing all these mixed signals. So that I I get really very irritating to me. And I'm not someone who is going to say like, oh, let, let me call out this person and that person. But what I'm saying is you don't understand how the body works and the physiology of hormetic stressors. Hormesis is one of the strongest things, best things we can do for our body. So like when you do a workout, Jason, you're working that muscle, but then there's all these downstream changes that happen when you exercise, you know, brain changes physiological heart inflammation changes. It's not just the muscle that's getting the exercise. Same thing with intermittent fasting. Yes, your metabolism is benefiting from it. Calories, the low calorie, blah, blah. There's all these downstream benefits that we're finding out of lowered heart disease, of better brain function, of lowered lipid and blood pressure. But we, it's a, it has to be given in a pulsatile, graded fashion. And that's where I think people get it wrong. And what's your take on women adding healthy fats mm-hmm. to help with intermittent yeah. fasting? I, okay, I think that women do better in general, and this is a super generalization. There's people who can do very low-carb, very low-fat diets, but women do better with healthy carbohydrates and healthy fats in, in their diet. In fact, If you look at the female physiological cycle, there's a luteal phase and there's a follicular phase. And if you really wanted to get into it, and I I do actually in the book, you can actually change your diet, your exercise and your fasting patterns based on what time of the cycle you're in. And this to me was really empowering because I actually use it like I'm I have it on my calendar, how I'm going to eat and fast and exercise on a weekly basis based on which part of the hormonal cycle I'm on. So for anyone, for everyone listening, what are the non-negotiables that I I know it's hard to generalize, but like everyone must do quote you to beat burnout, boost your energy and reclaim your life. I know pick up the book, everyone, the book's fantastic, but like, what are the non-negotiables that everyone just must do? 
non-negotiable daylight so um, <laughs> circadian rhythms this is a non-negotiable living and then living with circadian rhythms eating with circadian rhythms second non-negotiable doesn't have to be every day it can be a couple days a week you decide hey you know what i read this weird crazy book and i'm gonna just try it like two days a week three days a week and see how you feel and number three, and we didn't talk about it as much on the podcast, but it's talked about in the book, but mindset, how you manage your energy emotionally, mentally, your thought processes has the biggest impact on your health. Remember in 2020, we didn't do much yet. We felt exhausted and you can see the impact of our thoughts and the inputs that we have into our brain that can tire us and make us burned out. So let's talk about mindset for a minute. What I'm curious, what's the the biggest thing you've done that's had the you know greatest impact on your mindset? Vagal nerve stimulation. Vagal nerve stimulation is a fancy way that thousands of years ago in Eastern uh, medicine, you know, people would call prayer. They would call it when you say the word "om." There's a humming sound. The hum stimulates the vagus nerve. Deep breath out that you do in yoga, the, the exhale, the long exhale, it stimulates the vagus nerve. And we know now that we need to stimulate the vagus nerve to switch our bodies from that constant uh, sympathetic mode, fight or flight mode, and just give it little bouts of parasympathetic mode, which is the rest and digest mode. That is what is uh, conducted by the vagus nerve. So even we can go through our day and in our modern world, there is no built in vagal nerve stimulation. If you look at ancient cultures, there was built in vagal nerve stimulation, whether it was through prayer or through humming or there's, there was, if you look at cultures, there's a lot of built in. We have lost all that. We even lost some of the things that we used to have because of this year. So you need to build in vagal nerve stimulation twice a day, just really quick. And that has been a game changer for me. I love it. We've talked a lot about breath work on this podcast. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's game changing. So in closing, you know, we're so thrilled about our function nutrition coaching program. We're in this moment of time where well-being is more important than ever. People want to help their families, help their communities, empower themselves through information and make real change and be the change they want to see in the world. And you're part of our, our program. We're super proud of it. I would just love to get your take about why you're excited about our functional nutrition coaching program. I'm honestly so honored to be a part of the functional nutrition nutrition coaching program and part of the Mind Body Green family in general, because I think there's so much we can learn and teach and help each other with when we are empowered with the knowledge of what food can do for our bodies. Unfortunately, I was a nutrition major in college. I graduated with a nutrition degree. However, in medicine, I was never, until this program, I was never able to talk deeply about how food can impact our health. And so this program is a game changer. I'm so proud to be a part of it. Well, Amy, thank you so much for all the good work you do. Congrats on the book. I'm so effing tired. Everyone go pick it up. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Jason. As Amy just talked about in this podcast, nutrition plays a huge role in our overall health and well-being. 
You might even be so passionate about food that you're already a health coach or thinking about becoming one. You're in luck because our Functional Nutrition Coaching Program gives you access to 19 of the world's top doctors and health coaching experts, including Dr. Amy Shaw. There's over nearly 30 hours of instruction. These experts will give you a solid foundation in functional nutrition and teach you how to brand, market, and expand your wellness business. To enroll in our life-changing functional nutrition coaching program today, visit mindbuddygreen.com coaching and enter code SHAH, S-H-A-H, and get $300 off.